Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, October 26th, or 27th, rather. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, for better or for worse, education officials forecast what's next for the Jackson Public School District. Then, a Mississippi leader is taking the reins of a national advocacy organization. Here are his plans for success. And the most vulnerable place to hide during a storm could be your own home. Learn how to prepare for severe weather and protect your family. Plus, researchers say this art form runs deeper in the mind than some memories. Find out what it is. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Republican Governor Phil Bryant and Democratic Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba are joining forces to turn around the state's second largest school district. They announced the plan Thursday during a press conference. The decision follows the governor's review of the State Department of Education's request for a takeover. Instead, Governor Bryant has elected to appoint a 15-member Education Excellence Advisory Commission to look for ways to improve Mississippi's second largest school district. Several organizations will be a part of the collaboration, including the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the Education Commission, and the Mississippi Economic Council. Mayor Lumumba says the entire city school board has resigned. New members will be appointed. He says the agreement allows for opportunity. Over the last few weeks, there has been intense discussions regarding the state of our school district and the question or possibility of a potential state takeover. I am pleased to announce that the governor, the mayor's office, the Kellogg Foundation, and the Jackson Public School District has reached an agreement that not only looks at the present state of our school district, but the opportunity for improvement, the opportunity to have a transformational school district. To that end, We have reached an agreement where we will implement an educational excellence advisory commission, which will be made of 15 individuals, both locally and nationally, who have had specific expertise in the realm of education that will look to provide an analysis of the current conditions of JPS so that we can communicate that with the community in order to get feedback from the community, most importantly, so that we can identify our goals and objectives within our Jackson Public School District. We will maintain local control. We will still have our Jackson Public School Board, and we will look to providing a transformational educational district. Mayor Lumumba says he is proud of the initiative. This is an exercise in operational unity. What we have been able to achieve is what very few people have believed that we could. This is a moment where we have taken advantage of our 
our common interests instead of looking at our differences. This is a moment where the radical mayor and the conservative governor have worked together in order to work for the benefit of our children, and we are excited about that. The commission will include national and local education experts who will order an outside evaluation of the district's educational environment. Joyce Helmick is president of the Mississippi Association of Educators. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they support the governor's decision. As educators, we have been thinking that this was the right way to go. So we are thrilled that our leaders in the state have listened to the community of Jackson Public Schools. The members have come together and spoken. Civic leaders have spoken and said we are willing to come together to work together to improve and do what is necessary to make Jackson Public Schools great public schools for every child. The interim superintendent has been working and our educators in JPS have been working with him and the community to make these improvements. And we were in the room and listening to what he had to say, and we were all shaking our heads and going, there's no way that they can't listen to us and listen to him and know that this community is behind its public schools and will support whatever's necessary. Another thing that has been announced is having an outside evaluation of JPS performed one that looks at the educational environment, and the Kellogg Foundation has agreed to support that effort. Uh, What would you want them to look at when they do this evaluation? I think it would be looking at um, the aspects that are in that audit, but also more than that. I think that we need to look at um, and listen to our educators. We need to listen to what they have to say about discipline. So actually get them involved absolutely. in the discussion. Absolutely. I, I, and coming from an educator's perspective, uh, I think that is of most importance because our educators are the ones who are in those classrooms with those students. They know what those students need. They know what the walls of the building need. They know what Um, kind of conditions the buses are in. They know everything about that school system. So I'm hoping that in this evaluation or this uh, assessment that is coming from the outside that they look at a number of things, certified teachers that are trained in the classroom and what can be done about filling up the the spaces, Uh, looking at our school buildings and the environment uh, in which our students are learning, looking at the conditions even of the the roads and the buses, a, a multiple things. Another thing that I want to add that I think it's important for them to look at is the involvement of the community. How much involvement do we have of the um, parents and the community leaders in our schools? So we want to see our JPS schools turn into the most magnificent community schools where our parents are there, our business leaders are there, our uh, civic leaders are there, and they're all looking at the schools and saying these are the things that need improvement. So we're hoping that that assessment is going to look at all of those things. One thing that the governor brought up yesterday is that you cannot transform Jackson without 
changing and making that school system a star? Across the state, we all know that economic development depends on the schools. We have people come into the communities with the economic development, and they want to know first, what are the schools like? So, yes, that is utmost importance to revitalizing our capital city. So I want to see Jackson not only thrive in the school system, but in the economics. And I want to look at our capital with pride. And I believe that every citizen in the state of Mississippi wants to see Jackson revitalized. And I know for a fact that they want to see Jackson Public Schools, great public schools. This community opportunity is going to work. Well, Joyce Helmick, we really thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Governor Bryant says he still has the option of a takeover, but he wants to try a community approach first. State Senate Super- State School Superintendent Carrie Wright says in a statement she stands behind her department's finding. She said the Mississippi Department of Education has yet to be asked to take part in the coalition. Coming up, a Mississippi leader is taking the reins of a national advocacy organization. Here are his plans for success. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The head of the Mississippi chapter of the NAACP will now lead the national organization. Derek Johnson has been appointed to officially head the leading civil rights organization after serving as an interim co-chair for the past few months. The group is currently making headlines for issuing a travel advisory regarding what they call a pattern of disturbing incidences at American Airlines. Mississippi native Derek Johnson tells us more. We're not telling people not to fly on American Airlines. Our goal there is to make sure members have the necessary information to make clear decisions on how they participate in the marketplace. We are a membership-based advocacy organization. In that space, our job is to educate our members so they can be stronger advocates for equity, but also so they can be a more informed group of consumers and participants in this democracy. What was it specifically that raised some red flags about American Airlines? You you trace back to April of 2016, uh, State College President in North Carolina was removed from a plane based on an encounter he had with another two passengers who began to hurl racial epithets at him. And because of his disability and his inability to turn around, he stood up to address those racial appetites, and he was put off the plane, not them. And since that time, there have been a series of incidents where African-Americans were uh, taken off the plane. There was another incident where you have colleagues, one black, one white, who both purchased first-class tickets. When they began to board the plane, the African-American patron uh, seat was changed, and she was put in economy class, and her colleague was able to retain his first-class ticket and without any explanation. So there was a series of events that drew concern. What are the actual practices of American Airlines that is creating what appear to be racialized incidents 
And so we want to advise our members and the general public to be on the lookout for. If there are other incidents, please let us know. But consumer, be advised. Derek, some would say or might say that the NAACP is for an older generation. How do you become more attractive to younger people? I've heard that a lot. However, if you actually look at our structure, our membership and activities, you see an intergenerational model. Uh, We have young people on our youth councils uh, in the ninth through the 12th grade. We have college chapters across the state of Mississippi and across the country. We're very engaged. And uh, you take a look at Ole Miss. Some of those issues that Ole Miss has been resolved around the Confederate emblems over the last three years have all been led by young people on that campus for that college chapter. So where I've heard that stated before, the facts don't match up. Now, I can say we can be much more aggressive in recruiting for young people. We can be much more aggressive in aligning the work of existing groups that embody more young people so that we can highlight what's taking place. But most importantly, as an association, we got to get better control of our narrative so individuals can see the work that we're actually doing and not rely so much on broad statements that may or may not be consistent with the reality. You are taking the reins in a very charged time racially in this country. We have Black Lives Matter, athletes taking a knee during the national anthem, encounters between law enforcement and black men that sometimes end up being deadly. How does the NAACP insert itself in these matters in an advocacy way? The assumption is that we would need to assert ourselves, and in all of those scenarios, we are already inserted. That's about control of the narrative. If you look at what took place in Baltimore, our local unit was on the ground. They were actively engaged with the, with the Freddie Gray matter. Uh, if you take a look at what was taking place in Ferguson, although it didn't reveal itself, our local unit in Ferguson was one of the frontline entities that participated. We're in ongoing communication with the NFL Players Association around the status of what's taking place. So that's another situation where controlling our narrative and being more Attendance to telling our story will make a big difference in people understanding the effect of, of the NAACP. Derek Johnson, just named president and CEO of the NAACP. Congratulations and thank you so much for being with us, Derek. Thank you. Charles Hampton will be the new president of the Mississippi chapter of the NAACP. Coming up, the most vulnerable place to hide during a storm could be your own home. Learn how to prepare for severe weather and protect your family. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is making the transition into fall with dropping temperatures around the state. It's also the opening of the severe weather season. According to the National Weather Service, the state has been hit by 779 tornadoes in the months of November through February since 1950. Tornadoes cause an average of eight deaths and 107 injuries a year in Mississippi. In January of this year, tornadoes killed four Mississippians and injured 60 others. To raise awareness and encourage planning, Governor Phil Bryant has declared this week Severe Weather Preparedness Week. Lee Smithson is director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. He tells us Mississippians should be prepared year-round. We do have a year-round uh, severe weather threat in Mississippi. And I think that the biggest issue going into the fall is people b- breathe a sigh of relief 
coming out of hurricane season, and they kind of forget that uh, uh, we still have a significant amount of tornadoes uh, in November and December in Mississippi. We have a lot of flash flooding potentials in Mississippi, and we have, um, you know, the, the possibility of an ice storm. I mean, I just remember last uh, January, this past January, uh, on January the 2nd, we had a pretty significant tornado outbreak in the Jackson metropolitan area. And then that Friday of that week, the 6th of January, we had a significant ice storm where we had to shut down uh, state businesses, uh, state offices early uh, to get people home. So, you know, we're, we're just, we face a severe weather threat really 365 days a year, and we just want to keep people on their toes. What months are most likely to have tornadoes? Well, in Mississippi, uh, April is our number one tornado month, followed by May, uh, especially for the southern part of the state, but then for central and northern part of the state, December and then November are are the height of tornadoes. And of course, we can't forget that uh, on January 21st of this year, the Pine Belt was hit by a very significant EF4 tornado that uh, unfortunately claimed four lives. So again, people really associate tornadoes with springtime, and that's just not the case in Mississippi. We have tornado threat uh, in the wintertime and in the springtime. What kind of preparations can people make, you know, to winterize their homes, their vehicles perhaps, or, you know, just to stay safe in these kinds of situations? Well, I think that that's the biggest thing is is is, is always have a preparedness kit and a preparedness plan. So your kit needs to include uh, everything that you would need to survive for three or four days without electricity. So one gallon of water per person per day, non-perishable foods, a flashlight, a little bit of cash on hand, because again, if the if the power's out widespread, then ATMs won't work. Uh, keep your car in good running shape, um, and, and then just always be aware of your surroundings. So if there's a threat of uh, of tornadoes or severe weather, just know what you're going to do, whether you're at home, uh, you're at work, you're at school, or if you're out shopping, know uh, where the safe places are. Uh, and then, again, if it's if there's a threat of severe weather, uh, we ask people to get out of mobile homes uh, and then just don't travel, minimize your travel. You know, in, in December 2015, right before Christmas, we had a significant tornado outbreak up in Holly Springs, Marshall County area uh, that killed nine people. And a lot of those people were out doing their Christmas shopping. They just weren't weather aware. You know, for the past six years, uh, around the Christmas time, we have had very significant uh, tornadic activity. And, you know, it's just become a real fact of life in Mississippi that December uh, is, is just a very deadly month for tornadoes. And so, again, uh, we just ask everyone that as you're, as you're out uh, shopping for Christmas, as you've got family members coming in, that you just take a little bit of extra time to make sure that you've got a good plan uh, in the event of, of severe weather. And I just can't stress enough that those Mississippians who live in mobile homes really need to make plans to not be in mobile homes uh, in the outbreak of severe weather. We lead the nation in per capita mobile home fatalities due to tornadoes. So, I mean, it's the, the facts speak for themselves that a mobile home and a tornado, they just do not mix. Lee Smithson is the executive director of MEMA, Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. Lee, thank you as always. Karen, my pleasure. For detailed preparedness information, contact your county emergency management agency or go to MEMA's website at www.msema.org. Coming up, researchers say this art form runs deeper in the mind than some memories. Find out what it is. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. 
with any podcast app. You can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A Mississippi group is singing to raise awareness about the connection between music and brain health. Researchers say listening to and making music has the ability to unlock human potential, even when normal forms of communication have been altered. They say it's particularly true and becoming well-documented in those affected by Alzheimer's disease. The Mississippi Chorus, the Mississippi Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and others are teaming up to host concerts around the state. The events will be dedicated to the support of those whose lives have been touched by the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. Composer Robert S. Cohen will discuss his music, and Dr. Timothy Coker will present on the power of music and the mind. Dr. Coker is a professor emeritus at Millsaps College. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall more about the relationship between music and the mind. It's relatively new in uh, neuroscience, but uh, the numbers of researchers has, has grown almost exponentially. So what's happening is, uh, is strong suggestions about how important you know, music can be in brain health, plasticity of the brain, uh, building uh, neural uh, reserves for the mind. So um, it's very exciting for us who have been musicians all our lives. Uh, things that we have known anecdotally about how good music is for us as people, we're now we're getting data. And we used to think of uh, music and the arts as right or left brain kind of thing. But the fMRIs that we see now show the brain lighting up totally. And uh, the idea now is that uh, music, instead of being a right or left brain kind of activity, is a total brain exercise. So music is, it's not just that the artistic center, it's affecting all aspects of the brain. Absolutely. And, and it's not just the ears. It's the motor part of the brain. It's the language part of the brain. It's, it's so many parts of the brain are being stimulated at the same time. So, uh, so much of the uh, uh, hope for this is that through the idea of brain plasticity, the brain can regenerate itself. It can rewire, uh, so to speak. The Mississippi Chorus is doing uh, this piece by Robert S. Cohen called Alzheimer's Stories. Yes. And one of the pieces of text in the story reminded me or, or affected me when I when I listened to it because it says love and music are the last things to go. So sing anything. And what it made me think of is my grandmother, whom we lived with when she was declining with Alzheimer's disease. And that's absolutely true. Exactly. This is uh, it's happening a great deal. These memories and these emotions are still there. They just cannot get out. And one of the wonderful things about music, apparently, is music is, is attached to our emotions because most of our musical experiences, you know, have some emotional attachment to them in some kind of way. That when listening to music that they loved when they were young or music that they liked, period, it unlocks these memories. And for a while, somebody who's uh, an advanced dementia person is recalling who they were. And they recall emotions. They recall experiences. And even to the uh, the point sometimes that this person will carry on a conversation with whoever they're talking with in more or less a normal way. Quite amazing. 
are healthcare providers sort of waking up to the idea that that uh, music can be helpful in formal treatment of these of these or therapies involving these uh, dementia patients? Well, of course, this is part of what all of this is about is awakening that. And yes, indeed, they are becoming aware that this is another way to offer, uh, you know, a bit more quality of life to people, you know, who have lost so much of their quality of life. And everything doesn't have to be just a pill. Dr. Timothy Coker is a professor emeritus and was the chair of the music department for a long time at Millsaps and uh, and is part of this uh, uh, Sing Anything, this Alzheimer's Stories experience. And more information is available at singanything.org. Dr. Coker, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. The three-day concert series will take place tonight in Jackson, on Saturday in Cleveland, and on Sunday in Tupelo. For more information about the event details, visit singanything.org. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. At 10, it's Now You're Talking. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Educational Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org.